Welcome to Fret Buzz the Podcast. My name is Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Sefchik. And today, our guest is Dr. Darden Purcell. She's a jazz vocalist, and she's the director of jazz studies at George Mason University. And I've actually taken, um, I think it was history of jazz with her, and I've studied voice a little bit with her. Um, it's wonderful to have you on, Darden. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, if you uh, look back at our episode history, we actually interviewed her husband, Dr. Sean Purcell, um, 20 episodes ago or so. And uh, her husband was my teacher, my private guitar lesson teacher at George Mason. Um, so it's awesome to get, get his better half on. Oh. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so you were, you were performing last night? I was. I was in Baltimore. So, yeah, I had a gig in Baltimore, and that's kind of a long haul from Virginia, as I'm sure you remember. So, mm-hmm. what yeah. were you? Where were you playing? Well, I was actually. I've kind of started a new venture. Um, I have a friend who's a wonderful singer and piano player up there, and he's been trying to get me to do gigs where I'm playing piano and singing. Mm-hmm. And it's really the first time in my life that I've ever done that. I've accompanied students, but I do not consider myself a piano player. So last night I had a three-hour piano singing gig up in Baltimore. So Wow. Yeah, yeah wow is right. That's cool. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still getting used to it. In fact, I was telling him, like, this is totally putting me out of my comfort zone but um i want to get better at piano and there's really no better way to do it so it's so funny to hear you say that i you know i've seen you play the piano and you're it seemed wonderful when i saw you well thank you but it's not <laughs> i can tell you that i, I guess when you're surrounded i'm like if you sound good with me playing for you with a real instrumentalist you're gonna sound great so <laughs> i guess when you're surrounded by the other professors of jazz piano at at Mason and wherever else, I guess that can, it can uh, make you feel a little less oh, valuable. Yeah. Oh yeah, when I hear Wade Beach play, I'm kind of like, oh, <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay, so. I felt like that when I first got to George Mason, I felt like I was the worst guitar player on the planet, at least, or in the whole school. There's, you know, there's that period where you, you think you're getting pretty good at your instrument and then you go and you get put in your place and then you slowly, you know, you actually do get better. Right. And, um, there, you know, after you leave, the competitiveness goes out, at least for me, I don't have that competitiveness anymore. Right. At least right. I don't think so. You're not surrounded by your classmates and you're not sitting in front of panels of professors and right. that are judging you and, and you're and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's get- kind of, you know, school's wonderful. Obviously, I, I like school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a part of it. But um, and, and it's good to have that competition and to know what's around you. And if nothing else, to me, I enjoyed it to get ideas of, oh, I love, wow, this person's working on this. And, oh, I, that really interests me. I'd like to work on that um, as well, too. But then at times, too, it can definitely make you feel like, wow, I have a lot I have a lot I need to learn. What is that saying? The more you learn, the bigger the book. Yeah. So it's, and I feel like this journey in music too, it's lifelong learning. I mean, here I am in my mid forties doing my first piano and singing gigs and feeling not ready to do it at all, but that's okay. It's what we do. (laughs) And it does get easier. I I think the solo playing gets easier and easier. I hope. Please. I hope so. Send me some prayers. <laughs> Are you doing all uh, all jazz? Yes, I'm just doing all my own material, you know. And every every time I do this, he started me at two hours because I said I can probably do, do about two hours. If nothing else, just because I'm not a piano player, so it's just my hands after a while. And then the second gig, he uh, said, "I can't make it over there. You're going to have to do all four hours." Oh. Yeah, so I went from two hours to four hours, and we were just coming off our camp at Mason. So I had been up at like 6 a.m. in the morning and did the camp all day long and then got in my car at 3, drove to Baltimore, got to Baltimore at 6, did the gig from 7 to 11, then drove home. And the next day, my hands were so 
swollen. Sean was like, you need to take some ibuprofen, run them under cold water, just because I had just never done that much playing at once. So what kind of venue were you playing? It is an Italian restaurant in Little Italy, Baltimore. It's called Demimo's. And it's this wonderful kind of throwback vintage restaurant. So you you go into the the bar area and it's carpeted and they have these like almost carpeted bar stools that swivel and pictures of all these kind of famous people on the walls. So it's 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 I don't want to say it's a piano lounge because it's not like a dueling pianos thing, but it's definitely like a a throwback lounge. So that's cool. Fit, yeah. fit very well, I'm sure. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are you playing some of your original music on these types of gigs? No, you know, I have one original song in my repertoire. That is all I have. Oh, okay. Is it on the album or one of the two albums? Not, nope, not at all. It was actually an assignment that I did for class in grad school. And it was, it was part of a great American songbook uh, class. So we were learning about all the composers. And then at the end of it, the assignment was to create our own song. So I wrote my own song. I don't know if it's good or not. You know, I, I've actually only performed it like once or twice, but um, I don't know. That's just not something I've gotten into. I think it's because there's so much other repertoire that I feel like I need to learn that I just, I haven't, I haven't gone there yet. But the thing I do like doing that I'd like to do a lot more of is writing lyrics. So I really enjoy writing lyrics to other people's melodies. So like taking old instrumental jazz tunes and putting lyrics where there were no lyrics right or even new ones so um i think it was two years ago my vocal ensemble was chosen to perform at the jazz education network and this was Mm -hmm. a conference down in dallas um and it's a really cool conference it's once a year and the coolest part about it is probably the hang you get to see a lot of people that you haven't seen before and so that's cool but so we were down there and you know my group would normally only do about a 20 minute set every semester but this conference needed 50 minutes of music so it basically doubled our repertoire for the semester and so one of the tunes that i took was um, a wayne shorter tune called tell it like it is which was an instrumental piece and i wrote lyrics to it and then we turned it into um an arrangement for the vocal group. Lee Pilzer did that. So that was that was fun because I guess I feel like it's only half the work right now. Somebody else is taking care of the melody. So do you imagine a story in your head based on the the kind of mood or vibe of the song? Sometimes, yeah. So the Tell It Like It Is, I'd actually heard one of our combos do it. So one of the combos performed it, you know, with Way Beach. Mm-hmm. And I was just listening to the melody and thinking, this seems singable to me. Like it seems kind of singable. And that's really, really important because some instrumental pieces, as we know, are not overly singable. It's not saying we wouldn't do it, but um, I was just thinking of the other pieces that I wanted to do and how this would fit in. And I just thought, this is cool. I think I can do something with this. And I liked also the title of it, Tell It Like It Is, because then the story kind of started coming to mind of, oh, okay, okay, I can kind of visualize this. So. So I think it I think it turned out okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So that that was in Dallas, you said? Yeah, we went there, I think it was in 2018, January of 2018 in Dallas. So it was good. Yeah. Um, are you so you, what are you doing now that school's out, what are you doing? Do you have any do you have lessons through the summer and with your private students? Yeah, well, it's funny. I'm on a nine-month contract, which means I'm technically not supposed to be working at Mason from June until August, but I think we all know that that's impossible. So (laughs) if I didn't check my email for three months, that would be kind of the end of it. So I'm still, for all intents and purposes, I'm still working at Mason. I still check my email every day, and I'm still trying to get things together for the school year. I do teach a few private lessons in the summer, but not that many um because i really need a break you know so i'll do a few here or there but i like to keep it flexible um and then this summer i'm actually coming up on tenure so i was busy putting together my tenure packages so this has been a, a real working summer and then of course sean's releasing his cd so we've been putting together a ton of you know marketing materials and it's it's been a working summer for sure but i do i do like to take on students in the summer, that's kind of my only time. During the school year, it's almost impossible to take on private students. 
So otherwise I'd just be working all day long, every day. So That's when I, I used to come in in the summer to, to meet with you. Yeah. Long yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was very helpful. I, you were adamant that I needed to not push so hard in my singing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it took a few years to sing in, but I think I'm good. I have started that some of that has, has sunk in. Oh, good. Well, um, I'd love to hear you at some point. See, see your progress. That would be wonderful. Yeah. But <laughs> not over the podcast. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, I get, I want to go back to the beginning. Okay. And I'd love to get your story of how you got to where you are today. I mean, what, when did you first, did you start out singing or did you start out playing the piano and how did this all blossom? I, that's a good, that's a good question. I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> how did this all happen? Um, I, well, I always sang. So as a child, I, I always started singing um, or started out singing really young. I sang in church choirs. That's really where I started out was church choir. And then throughout high school, I sang in choirs um, as well too. But I never, I didn't come from a musical family. My family loves music, but nobody played an instrument. And we were also, my dad was in the military and we lived in England for about eight years. So we were moving around quite a bit. Um, so I didn't take any piano at all when I was younger. I play, actually, I played a little bit of guitar. This is a funny story. So my parents still had our, my sister and my guitars that we played in folk choir, like the church choir. And uh, when I first started dating Sean, I brought him down there to see the guitar. And it was, I mean, the strings were like so tight because it had been sitting in my parents' basement for like, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years or something. And he was laughing at the shape of this guitar. I mean, it was awful. I'm like, well, it didn't really matter because we were eight or 10 when we were playing it. So, you know, it's not in good shape. So, uh, and I don't remember anything from that. So, uh, so anyway, so I was playing, you know, I was singing in high school. I never thought of music as a career at all. I actually wanted to go into business. So I started out at Virginia Tech in the School of Business. And let's just say, that wasn't going so well for me <laughs> as happens, you know, with a lot of students. That's why I'm always so open to transferring and changing degrees just because I, I personally think it's impossible for someone at 16 to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life. <laughs> I think that's kind of a ridiculous thing that we put on our society of you're 15 years old. Now, what do you want to do for the next 50 years? You know, it's, I don't know. You know, it is crazy. Yeah. You're, I mean, that, that, early 20s is such a period of development and growth and figuring out who you are. I mean, I went, I have completely changed my course. I know. I remember. Yeah. Well, and you know, so we have the society constructs of, you know, well, you don't want to do this. You want to do that. Then we have obviously just friends and family. I mean, they play a huge impact in our life as to the path maybe they've taken or what they, the path they think you want to take. And then there kind of comes down to what actually makes me happy you know? Um, so anyway, business was not going well. So I joined choir and the choir director said, you should audition for the school of music. And I, I just kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? School of music? <laughs> what is that? So I auditioned for it. I kind of fell into the jazz department, really. They were asking what I was interested in doing. And I said, well, I want to sing in restaurants and bars and clubs. And I, I basically knew I didn't want to sing opera. I didn't want to take the classical route because I'd never done that before. So I thought, this is what I want. And they said, well, why don't you go and talk to, they actually said, why don't you go downstairs and talk to the jazz people? So, because the jazz faculty were in the the bottom floor of the music school, which is often typical. <laughs> so, it's okay though. Um, so I did, I went and spoke to them, my teachers, uh, Lisanne Lyons and Chip McNeil. And four years later, I was one of the first graduates from a jazz with a jazz degree. And so that's how I really kind of fell into it, which is again, why I always try to be so flexible with my own students or with anyone coming in because I myself did not have that perfect path of, you know, I'm going to do this forever, you know? Now, did you uh, even listen to jazz growing up? Very little of it. I think at the time, Natalie Cole had just come out with her big hits with her dad. It was kind of like, remember the duets and the holograms. So this yeah. was in the, I guess, early nineties, yep. sort of late, late eighties, early nineties. I had never, 
really listen to much jazz before that. My dad, my dad was a huge jazz fan and he had gone to see Charlie Bird. He was from DC. So he would go to a clubs in DC. So I, you know, I think I'd heard it, but it was not, um, no, I was not listening to it adamantly. But as soon as I got into it, I loved it. And this is also something that I remember very well from undergrad is, you know, there was no internet. I think when I started college, they gave us an email address and half of us were looking at this address like, what do we do with this? I mean, we were still standing in line with our index cards to register for our classes, you know? So there was no, there was no YouTube, there was no iTunes, there was no really way to check out music other than physically going to the record stores and, you know, rummaging through the bins and finding music. And I remember my teacher, she had CDs in her office and she would loan us a CD. We had to sign out the CD. She'd loan it to us for a week. I'd have to go back, listen to that whole CD. And I'd listen to it again and again and again for a week because I knew I only had it for a week. Then I had to bring it back to her office, give it back to her, and then she'd give me another CD. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that story. And that's, I mean, that's why now sometimes I get a little frustrated when people say, I couldn't find it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Google it. You can find it in like 30 seconds. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. and so then, of course, we'd go to... Well, we'd love to go to up to New York city or try to find the big record marts, you know, like tower records in New York city. Oh, we'd spend forever in there. Cause it was the only time we got to see this, you know? So, so anyway, so that was college. Um, and then really right after college, I auditioned for the air force band in DC and I was fortunate enough to win that audition. But interestingly enough, it wasn't for jazz. It was to be in a rock band. So I sang, yeah, I sang pop music and country music. I sang Disco Inferno. Wow. Yes. Awesome. I know. Yeah, you're laughing. Yes, it was quite laughable. Having you That's great. But it was good. You know, it was a job. It was a full-time job with benefits. It was doing something that I loved. I sort of fell into that. Again, too, my teacher was an Air Force vocalist, and so she said, you should look into this. Again, there's no internet, so all the advertising is done through magazines, and so it really is hit or miss, you know? So I was very fortunate, and that's where I met Sean. So, and that's where I really kind of turned. I mean, I was, by the end of college, I was really in interested in jazz, but then when I got the rock gig, you know, that started taking more of my time, and so that's when Sean and I started really, well, he was already gigging, but I started gigging more and trying to get more into the actual genre, so. Was he performing in the Air Force Band then? Yeah, he was in the Airmen and Oak. Yeah. His, his story was twisting and confusing at times because he was in different military bands. Yeah, no, he is, he's funny because he's now been in two different branches of the military and three different big bands. So yeah, the musicians tend to kind of jump around from band to band based on instrument if they're allowed to, you know, so. So then I did that for four years and Sean and I basically decided we wanted to get out. Um, I decided, you know, I, well, I love this and it was a wonderful opportunity. There were other things I wanted to do and life was beginning to take us in another direction. And so we moved to Nashville for four years and we liked Nashville a lot. We met a lot of really wonderful people. Um, but after four years there, I again was feeling nomadic and thought, let's go to grad school. So I, I was still in touch with my former teacher, Lisanne, and she said, Illinois has a great grad school. You should move there. And so we did. We sold our house. We had just built a house in Nashville, so we sold our house and moved to the middle of Illinois. And that university, it's a great university, but it's in the middle of a cornfield. So when we were kind of driving there from Nashville, we're thinking, what have we done? <laughs> like we went from DC to Nashville to Urbana-Champaign with a population of 150,000 people. But it was incredible. I mean, it was an amazing Midwest town. They love music. The followers, the supporters were unbelievable. I mean, it was, such a wonderful experience. And then after four years, it was, I think, 2011, yeah, we moved back to uh, DC and I got my job at Mason in spring of 2012. So that's my life in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> what, how did you, what did you do while you were in Nashville? Did you perform full time? No, I didn't. At that time, you know, we needed to make a living. So I took on a full time job 
um, during the day, and I my thinking, my logic was, I'll work during the day, and then I'll perform at night. And that quickly taught me, I was so exhausted after working all day long that the last thing I wanted to do was perform at night, you know? And so there wasn't a lot of performing. In fact, I probably went for a year without singing at all. And that really did not work out well for me. <laughs> I really realized at this point that I need to do something different. And so I, I ended up quitting that one job and I actually worked on Music Row. I worked for CSAC, which is kind of one of the companies that's alongside um, ASCAP and BMI. And I, I enjoyed that job. I enjoyed my other job as well too, but it was not affiliated with music at all. But it gave us a salary and it gave us health benefits. Uh, Sean at the time, I think was, he was in school. He was working for Heritage Amplifiers. He was building amps. We were both teaching. I mean, we were doing every single thing we could to kind of piece together this life, you know? Um, so I, I really enjoyed working for CSAC. I was in the licensing department. So I was kind of one of the people that was working with mechanical licenses and licenses for venues that have music. Um, and then after that, that's when we decided to go to grad school. Nashville is a wonderful musical town or a music town. It was really great. It didn't have as much jazz as we would have wanted it to, which when we tell people that they kind of laugh at us <laughs> like, well, of course, it's kind of country music USA. But but we just are we're so used to living in this area, which has every bit of music. But in Nashville, I've, I found that the, the scene was country music and Christian kind of gospel, a little bit of jazz, but not not as much as you would need to really make a career out of. So one of your favorite towns is New Orleans, right? I heard you well, talk about it. Yeah, I like New Orleans. It's a good time. I've only been there like once or twice. So um, but it's cool. We're going back down in January. The Gen Conference will be there. So we'll be back there again. But, okay. I feel like I I remember you, maybe it was in class, just when you were telling us about the birth of jazz in New Orleans. Sure. And you were very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wore my wore my jazz fest shirt today. All right. <laughs> I made it down there this year. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, I got to see so much good music. It was it was wonderful. I got to see the Marsalis family play and fabulous. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it is just an amazing town to be able to go and just see just club after club. Yeah. Jazz. Yeah. It's very upbeat. It's really fun music. Yeah. Like they're not, I appreciate good ballads and that sort of thing, but the New Orleans jazz is, there's a, a funk, a funkiness to it and just very upbeat. It's fun. It, it's good for people who want to go out and they're out drinking or partying and they want to listen to jazz. Right. Yeah. It's very yeah. different from like a New York jazz that I've seen. Yeah, it's interesting that the cities take on kind of the different personalities, I feel like, of players. And New Orleans is such a party town, you know, so people are, obviously, it's a destination people want to go. And I think the music and the personality of the players kind of takes that on. Chicago is different from New York, for sure. That personality is different. And then, of course, the West Coast is different as well. So it's always kind of interesting and fun to see. Yeah. Yeah, well, so you've been, what was your, other than just the fact that while you were in the military, um, you were singing a different style of music than you were primarily interested in, what were some of the experiences that you value that you thought were, were interesting? Did you get to perform in the Middle East or anywhere? Yeah, well, I, I personally think singing rock was a really good thing for me. You know, even though it wasn't something I wanted to do, I felt like I learned a lot. I felt like it made me really versatile. Um, and I think it also taught me at a young age that sometimes you're going to have to do some things you don't necessarily want to do. But if you stick with it and take the positive from it, you'll grow from it. So that was a lot of fun. I really loved I loved my group and I loved the players in the group. So it was fun. Um, yeah, I, I did get to do some pretty amazing things in the Air Force. Um, I got, we had a guest artist series every single year where they would bring in about four or five guest artists. Um, and some of them were pop acts and kind of jazz acts. So I got to sing backups for Shaka Khan, which that was pretty amazing. She was one of my idols or is one of my idols. Um, and I got to sing backups for a whole bunch of other kind of country artists as well, too, who came in. Um, we did deploy to the Middle East twice. So that was pretty incredible. 
in some of the places we were at, I think we were in um, United Arab Emirates and Oman and I think Pakistan. I think when we were in Pakistan, we were about 30 miles from the Kuwaiti border. So that was pretty incredible seeing that part of the world, you know, um, and then performing in it. That was what was strange is my, my group at the time was sort of a show group, rock group. And so we didn't wear uniforms to perform in. We wore outfits and sequins and stuff. So we would get off these planes in our desert BDUs and then we'd have to go change. And I put on like a sequin top and then go and perform. So that was kind of odd, <laughs> but, but cool. I know, I was like, well, I don't know what's happening here, but okay, we'll go with it. So um, yeah, so that, that was amazing. I mean, performing for the troops was, I think probably the highlight of my time there. I love that. Uh, just because what they were going through over there, what their families were going through at home, you know, without them, that I just thought it was really cool to be able to bring something of home to them overseas. Um, and they were very appreciative. I mean, it was just to have a little bit of normalcy, I think was really appreciative, even in sequence. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So. Got to do what you got to do. That's right. Showbiz. Yep, that's right. I can't admit sequins in a, in a place where most of the women are wearing um, headscarves and that sort of thing, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, can, I would imagine you might get, I don't know, dirty looks from people. Well, luckily, we were just on the base. So we oh, didn't okay. get outside of the bases very much. I don't think we were allowed to, So, um, which was fine by me. <laughs> so keep me. Keep me safe. So Yeah. I just watched that. Was that Jack Ryan on Netflix? Oh yeah. It was a. Uh, I don't know if I should have seen that. I, I feel like it was like. I don't know how much of it's real and fake, but just seeing yeah. the Middle East and the conflict up close was an entertaining show. It was, you know, I mean, it was pretty amazing going over there and just seeing the the people, the landscape, the heat. I remember we got off some plane. I can't remember where we were, but it was something like 127 degrees. I, I know what it was. We had flown from Kyrgyzstan, which was, I think, in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. It was pretty cold. You know, everyone thinks everything over there is hot, but there are definitely some pockets, depending on where they are, that's not. It was pretty cold, and we'd been sitting on this airplane for a while trying to get clearance to go do go wherever we were going. Then we landed in the next uh part of the world and it was like 127 degrees and they opened up the back of the plane and it was just like, oh, wow. I can't breathe, <laughs> you know? So, but um, yeah, it was really cool. It was interesting. 127. Yeah. Oh, that's horrible. I know. Yeah. It's pretty like, and we complain about dry heat and humid heat over here, you know? <laughs> I've been out performing. I play for the city of Virginia beach on to live on Atlantic. And I was out there Wednesday night and Thursday night and Wednesday night was, it was like, I don't know if it was 90 degrees, but just really humid. And my fingers were sticking to the guitar the whole time. And I had to just like stop sliding into notes cause like my fingers would stick and it's just hard. It's hard to play when it's the weather can be very difficult. I hate outdoor gigs. I hate them. I'll just admit it. I'll take them. I'll take any gig that comes my way. I hate them. Sean hates them. He hates them because he gets all either suntan lotion or bug spray all over his guitar. So then he's got to come home and clean it all off. Yep. I hate it just for the sheer fact that you're sweating. It's hot. It's miserable. You know, it's just, it's so much more fun for the people that are enjoying it than, than I feel for us. I just, I'd rather be inside an AC anytime. <laughs> Climate control. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Outdoor gigs are tough. I mean, during when it gets cold, your fingers get stiff and oh, it's, it's extremely hard to move. And then in the heat, you're just like, oh, man, it's they need to make like on the guitar head stock. They need to make like a little fan that blows down at your fingers. Oh, Aaron, <laughs> Aaron, you could uh, you could. You can make that. And yeah, patent that. Patent yeah, it. Patent. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I also don't like outdoor gigs either because there's always impending rain. Yeah. And I don't know why the conversation of we're plugged into electricity, we're holding electricity is always such an argument of, you know, <laughs> I know you see it's raining and I'm plugged into, I'm holding something electricity. Mm -hmm. I'd rather not be electrocuted on your gig. Yeah. So. 
but that's always a conversation you have to have, you know? It's terrible when, at least for us, we don't actually have uh, covers on our stages. And so the rain comes and they're like, they tell you to throw a tarp over your stuff and you just, that's what you do. I take my speaker step, uh, tower down and cover it with the tarp and hope that it's not, it's just a little passing. Wow. And just wait out the rain and then. If it looks terrible, down. they'll tell you to just pack it up. But I've been caught a couple of times where I had to just cover it and either underneath the tarp, try to pack everything up or <laughs> it's, it's horrible. That's why I don't, I don't bring my good guitar out there. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, it's, the joys of outdoor playing. Yeah, yeah, and def I definitely don't wear sunscreen while I do it because that would be awful trying to play with, with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the cold is difficult for singing, and that really, really constricts your vocal cords. Yeah, I just don't. And any type of extreme weather, it's not <laughs> not my favorite to perform in. Yeah, well, um, so now that you're working in higher education, what you're the director of jazz studies, is, that's your official title? I am. So what is your, do you spend more time managing um, professors and behind the scenes things, or do you spend more time um, reaching out to potential students and doing recruitment kind of thing? What what are your day-to-day -day duties? Right. Um, kind of both. I would say that I do spend the majority of my time um, working with the jazz faculty, scheduling, scheduling, you know, all of our concerts and lessons for the faculty, a lot of marketing, mark, trying to market all those events. I do have some interns now, student interns that help me um, with all of this because we run, we can run anywhere from 10 to 15 concerts a semester which is pretty amazing because the semester only runs 15 to 16 weeks. So, and it's not one concert a week. It's usually we go about a month and a half or two months and then everything hits at once in the month of November or the month of April. So um, I do, as for prospective students, yes. Um, I kind of am in charge of answering any type of questions for any student that's interested in jazz uh, or pursuing one of our jazz degrees. Um, and I attend all the audition days as well, too, to try to hear these students. I deal with all the scholarships for our students, trying to get them money if we can. Um, and then I teach. I still teach my studio. My studio last semester had about 15 singers in it. Um, and then I run the ensemble. I don't teach a jazz history class anymore. Um, one of our doctoral students is teaching that. So that was kind of nice, although he'll be done soon. So I'll probably take that back on. Um, so yeah, I'm still teaching, but I do quite a bit of administrative work more than I'd like to do, honestly, but that's a job. Do you see any trends in the incoming pool of students that are auditioning? Do you see more interest in jazz or like over the past five years or so or less, or do you see higher quality candidates coming in or lower quality? That's a really good question. Um, it's funny. It's recruiting is witchcraft. It really is. I don't think there's one. There is certainly not one way to do it. If, if we do this, we will attract a ton of students. It is every single year it changes every single year. It's kind of like reinventing the wheel, which is sort of in some ways it's not good, but in other ways, I feel like it is kind of good because you're, you're constantly, like you said, the students are always different every single year, you know, and every single year it's, it's just interesting to see these differences. So last year we had probably one of our biggest influx of students coming in to the degrees, which was wonderful, but they were of wildly different backgrounds and interests, just really, really different. Um, and so some of them may continue on with the degree. Someone may actually, some of them may be adjusting part of this just because they have such different interests. Um, so that was really interesting. This year for our auditions, everyone was interested in jazz. Every single person that came in was like hardcore. This is what we want to do. And this was our, we had our highest level of players coming in this year. Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting. It wasn't our biggest, it wasn't our largest amount of students, 
but the level of playing was very different from you know what we have sometimes seen. So every single year is is different. You know, um, it's just it's just interesting, mm-hmm. and it's also interesting to see the differences in the studios. The studios every single year. You know, like one studio. I think last year Sean might have had like four or five people that joined the studio last year. This year, I think he had like one or two, you know? Um, And then of course we had a very large class that graduated last year. I think we graduated about eight people, which, you know, for our program, that's a lot of people. You know, our program is not, even though the School of Music is big, the actual jazz program has, you know, anywhere between 30 and 40 people in it. So when you graduate eight, now we're talking a third of your program or a fourth of the program is graduated. So it's, you know, when I first started the job, I would get really worked up about numbers and players and just making sure that we had enough people in the program so that everyone could play in groups so that they were enjoying what they were doing. Um, and now I've just kind of let it go and let whatever happens happens because it just kind of does, you know, and I don't, I feel like that's kind of a dumb answer to your question, (laughs) but it's hard to, pin down what works, what doesn't work, what happens one year doesn't happen the next year. I mean, it's just witchcraft. It's nuts. I, I think you you perfectly answered my question in that it does fluctuate so much. And yeah, I, so, sometimes I wonder if if there are these bands like Snarky Puppy and some of these these jazz groups that are <clears throat> getting in like right. using more mainstream sounds with jazz. And I'm wondering if that's reaching younger students ears i know that i have my students listen to snarky puppy yeah because i want to i want to hook them into more complex music and i try to use music that has some you know that sounds kind of like relatable to what they've already been listening to absolutely and yeah i didn't know if you know the broader societal changes in the music industry have affected right right the youth yeah, I'm sure like with, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head with things like, <laughs> oddly enough, with um, all the television shows and their competitions and kind of bringing more singers to the forefront. Uh, I wonder if that affects. I, I, my question would be to you, um, do you see, what are the backgrounds of the people who are coming into the into the program um, and how, how have they kind of prepared themselves for that step. I'm kind of interested in terms of um, where these people are coming from and and how much experience they have for, especially any of our listeners who are thinking about doing school. That's such a great question. They are all over the map. Yeah. You know, um, they, we have people who've been studying jazz for years. They've played all through high school. Um, they've taken private lessons. You know, they come into the program really well, um, well-versed. They, they've had a lot of it. We have to remember also is that, especially for the students coming into the program, so much of it depends on what they've done in high school, mm-hmm. what groups they had in high school to play with. So many of the high schools now don't have jazz bands as credited ensembles. They're clubs. They're after-school clubs or they're before-school clubs. Um, a lot of the schools, because of the, the funding or the cutting that's happening in the arts funding, Um, They won't run jazz bands in the fall because it's marching band season. So then they run it in the spring. So, so many of these students coming in, it really depends on the background, what school they were, they went to and what the school, that school afforded them opportunity wise. Um, A lot of it depended on also just their lifestyle at home as well too. You know, maybe the parents really push the students into, we want you to take music and we're going to pay for lessons and you know, all of that. And then you may have some other families that couldn't afford that. So private lessons was not an option. You know, it's like whatever music they were going to have was through the school. So we see, we just see it's, it's all over the map, you know? Um, in fact, we just had a, a young player that came in last year and had never taken a private lesson before ever in her life. Ever. And she had a fantastic year. She had a wonderful year. Her growth was off the charts, you know. And so that's why. And I think part of it is my background coming in because I had never had a private lesson before I started music school. I mean, I my choir experience was not 
didn't have anything to do with sight reading or oral skills or anything like that. It's just not what, that was not my experience. So it's, if people are interested in music, my thing is if they're interested in music, if they're willing to work, if they are inspired and have the passion, I want to give them a shot. You know, I feel like that's, that's our job. That's what I want to do. Um, sometimes it may work out. Sometimes it may not work out. It just really kind of depends, but the experience levels are, um, kind of all over the place. The one thing that I would say that obviously scholarships, the more experience people have, the better the players they, they are, then there's merit scholarships. So that kind of enters into it. But I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible to see the differing, uh, levels in in the program, and I would say that that probably goes for a lot of schools, right. you know, especially small school, a smaller school like us. Like if you get to some of the big schools that the music schools have been around for a hundred years, you know, you're going to have certain levels. But even in those schools, you're going to have, you know, varying levels. So um, I don't know. Did that answer the question? Oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it makes sense. I mean you're getting people from all over the place and could even be out of the country where they may not have access to um, a private lesson and and that's their first experience. Um, Could you tell me in your own words, I'm kind of thinking about this because you were talking about how you were also in a rock or pop uh, ensemble as well. And going into jazz as a vocalist, I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there that kind of go, jazz vocals, isn't that just like skiddly, skiddly, bop, 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 bop? (laughs) So could you kind of talk a little bit about vocals within jazz? Right. Um, Yeah, I think most people do kind of gravitate to scatting. for That is obviously something that um, jazz instrumentalists and vocalists do. for, for me, and that, that's an interesting question too, a lot of the students or many of the students that we have coming in don't really know what jazz is. They think they know what it is, but they don't know that the snarky puppy guys all went to one of the more famous jazz schools or music schools in the country. Like they, they went through the band programs, they went to the school, they played at the school, and then they start their own group that's definitely kind of a hybrid and a crossover group. Um, so... Uh, the, the so many students, they think they know what it is. They're not really sure what it is. Um, they don't, they say they don't like it at all. You know, oh, I don't like that. I don't listen to this, this music. And then um, I'll just start naming a few tunes, a few songs that are really, really popular songs. They don't know that it's jazz, right? Because they, it's been so ingrained as part of kind of American culture, you know, and half the restaurants that we go to and half the places we go to, they're usually playing jazz in the background. We're just so used to hearing it, we don't really think about it that much. So for jazz vocals, um, well, I always think of the big the big singers. I mean, there's hundreds, there's thousands of them, but Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughn, Peggy Lee. Um, to me, jazz voice is, at the beginning of the, at the beginning, kind of the beginning of jazz, um, it was really coming from more of the crooning and kind of almost more classical bel canto sound, moving into crooning, moving into jazz. They were the storytellers, so they're the ones that sang lyrics. And and most of the singers, when they they started out, they were really there to tell the story and sing the story. Um, and and some of them started like there's the famous story about how Louis Armstrong started scatting by I think Joe, I've told this in the um, our history class before too, where he was in a recording session and he was supposed to play something on trumpet and he drops the music and the producer, the recording engineer is like, just keep going, keep going, tapes rolling. You know, back then they couldn't do anything. So then he just starts scatting. Well, whether or not that story's true, I don't know. It seems a little strange to me because I feel like Louis Armstrong probably didn't need music at all to play. So I don't know why dropping his music would have affected him, but that's the story of heebie-jeebies. So I, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. That's a really, that's a good question to ask. I think it's, people just need to do a little bit of research and they will find so much. And well, Frank Sinatra, yeah. you know, yeah. Tony Bennett. I mean, there, we could just list so many people. I do like, um, you know, the Tony Bennett and duets album with like Lady Gaga. Joe, you were talking a little bit earlier on about kind of hooking 
students. Mm -hmm. I do think that albums like that uh, or concerts do kind of tend to hook people that don't think they like jazz or don't know much about it. And then all of a sudden you start kind of going back and researching more and kind of getting more into the, I guess, the pure form of it. But the baby steps are amazing. I'll, I'll have to listen to that Tony Bennett album. Yeah, it's, you know, it's good. It, it is what it is. You know, I mean, I, I like it. Um, it's, you know, there are lots of other duets albums out there that I like better, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's um, whatever to me, whatever keeps this music alive is great. And, and whatever avenue people have of getting into the music is really important. Not everyone like, and I, I think one of the reasons why I believe in that very strongly is my background was so different from Sean's background. Sean grew up in an all musical family. Every single person in his family um, played an instrument and and did this for their living as well too. So, I mean, he was, by the time he was 15 or 16, he was playing ice capade shows with his dad. So you have that entryway into the music and then you have my entryway into the music. Very, very different. So, you know, it's kind of however people get to it. As long as they get to it, that's my big thing. <laughs> right. Yes, it has to be a goal of yours and you have to have the passion. And, right, um, and some people like scatting. Some people don't like scatting, you know? I mean, I work a lot of gigs with guys that, you know, say, don't scat. We don't, this restaurant doesn't want that there, which is fine with me. I'm mm-hmm. fine with not, I'm kind of one of those vocalists that if I'm with a really great player, I would much rather listen to them than, you know, than scat myself. So so that's, that's one facet of it, for sure. Because I perform a lot at, retirement homes and places that I, you know, at first I was just doing instrumental versions of tunes like all of me or fly me to the moon. And they always want you to sing. Yeah. So I started, I started singing a lot more of these tunes. And what I've found is that while the singing, the physical singing aspect is very similar in a lot of ways. I know you, you talk about it's a lighter sound with less vibrato, but Aside from that, I've found that it's the notes that you're singing. You're singing a lot of, you know, thirds and seventh of sevenths of chords and notes that don't necessarily sit in that triad like they do in normal pop right. and rock music. And that's the biggest thing for me. It's just you're singing more d- difficult notes to sing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those composers were brilliant, I think. I think that's why another reason why I haven't, written a lot of my own original music because it seems like every other day I'm running across a song that I want to learn, you know, and the, the jazz composers really to me, uh, and the interesting thing is they weren't jazz composers at the time. They were the popular music composers. And especially in the twenties and the thirties and the forties, they were actually writing Broadway shows. That's what they were writing. So it's, it's interesting to kind of think that we call them jazz songs now, but at that time that was a song from a popular Broadway show and then we kind of took it and did what we were going to do with it. But um, yeah, they, some of the melodies are incredibly challenging, incredibly hard. Some of them are incredibly easy, which I also think makes that very difficult for you. Um, For us as singers, like I tell some of my students, sometimes the easier compositions, the easier melodies are actually harder because you have to do something with it yourself as an artist then. Sometimes if something is much more complicated, just getting through that complicated aspect, it's like, okay, that's, that's it. But when something is really easy, that exposes your creativity as an artist. How do you sell something like, like all of me, all of me is not that difficult of a tune. So then what do you do with it? It's, it's certainly not as challenging vocally as like a prelude to a kiss or even body and soul or something that's changing keys or tonicizing different, you know, key areas. So, um, yeah, I, I love it. I love the music and I love with teaching my students also is having them point out why certain parts of the melody works the way that it does over the chords. You know, like I tend to end a lot of songs on either major sevens or flat nines. I don't know. I just gravitate to those two. Uh, depending depending on the tune and of course depending on the harmony but it's important for people to know why this works over this harmony or why it doesn't work or why it's so important and so unique and it's always fascinating for me too to think about did these people know what they were writing or were they just 
so good and that was in the, their ears that it just kind of came out this way. And now, of course, throughout the years, we've been analyzing it and, you know, waxing philosophical about what were they thinking? What were they doing? Maybe they just thought this sounds good to me, so we're going to put it out there. But yeah, I would agree with you. In your lessons, how much time do you actually spend breaking down, you know, exactly what you're talking about, the chord theory and the song structure, as opposed to the physical singing aspects? Right. Do you actually get into, like, in lessons with my lessons, we were saying, like, okay, let's play the bebop scale off the root, the third, the fifth, the seventh arpeggios, or, you know, hitting the flat nine into the root, like there were concepts that were very theoretically based that then right. we would try to put in. Do you actually have them figure that out with the piano and then sing that and then try to sing it without the piano? No, I don't. Um, probably what we do the most theory-wise is I make them write out all their own charts on finale. So they all, they have to, they can't just open up a real book and sing it in the key. Um, number one, they, I don't want them to do that anyway because the key's probably not going to work for them. So we need to find a more comfortable key for them. And the reason why I have them put it in finale is because to me, that is how they actually learn the chart. That's how they learn the piece of music is they write it out. They can see the form. They can create an intro. They can create an ending. I think it's just the act of writing it out um, and, and then changing keys makes them a lot more intimate uh, and, and understand the form more and then understand the tune as well. You know, so some of our tunes are obviously 32 bars. That's pretty easy. But then maybe somebody does a tune that's 34 bars, that the last A section is actually 10 bars versus eight bars. Now they have to really start thinking about that. And I know that we discuss this in our lessons as I'm really not trying to um, foster singers who are waiting for an accompanist to nod them in. Okay, now you can come in. You know, I want them to know exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I want them to know you know how many bars something is i want them to be able to hear what they're doing and i feel like the charts is the most important thing within those charts though another thing that's really always fascinating to me is that singers work so much off of recordings and so many times on these recordings it's not that they're wrong it's just that the artists have chosen to move away from the melody so people will come in and they will be singing a song because they learn they learned it off a recording, which is exactly what we want them to do. We want them to listen, um, but they're not singing the correct melody. So then when they go back and learn the melody, they realize, oh, well, that's even cooler what that artist has done because that artist has, you know, this is their version of this song. So now they have two versions of this song, you know. Um, and a lot of times, sometimes, I would say probably more times than not, when people are changing the melodies, sometimes they're making them easier than the actual melody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so when you have to go back and really look at that, then you realize, oh, I was missing. I'm, I didn't get that. Or that's really important that I should have known about. So I think it, it helps the singers to try to be more like band leaders, you know, that um, not just it's. It's important for us, the lyrics and the story is the most important thing. But if we don't really know what's happening underneath, we're, we're missing half of it. We're missing 50% of it. Yeah, I find that happens a lot with a lot of my students is this, this practice of listening is just everybody's so eager to get to the final result or just to dig in yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that they miss half the process of, yeah, the recording is extremely important and you need to analyze the recording and actually figure out. But what I'll find a lot of my students are doing is they're actually either singing or playing over top of the recording. And I'm, I have every single one of my students, I go through this process of don't sing, don't play just listen because there's so much information that you're missing by trying to do what you're doing over top of what they're doing. Absolutely. You need to go through that process of analyzing exactly what they're doing within this one bar right. <laughs> because it's so important. That's And like you said, often on the other side of it, they come out learning something that right. we all kind of have this tendency to take a shortcut here and there to make things a little bit easier. 
Right. But when you when you actually open your ears and listen to exactly what's going on, you're op you're now open to maybe a new technique or something that you never really thought was there. And then once you start to incorporate that, it's it gives you that really good feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, there's such a big difference too that I find between passive listening and active listening. Mm -hmm. We passively listen all day long because we're we're a society that's completely and totally overstimulated all day. Myself included. If I'm at home, I have the TV on. I don't know why. I just like background. I'm not watching it. I'm not listening to it. It's just, but it's there. I need something in the background. I feel like for a lot of our students now, especially with these phones and earbuds and everything, they are listening to stuff all day long. They're not really actively listening to it. They're not focusing on it. They're not sitting down, closing their eyes, really listening to it and really figuring out what is happening here, you know? And we, I try to do that in the studio too, where I'm gonna incorporate quite a bit more of this this year because I've been a little lax on it and they have not been doing as much as I want. But listen to a tune and write what's happening. What is the instrumentation? Um, what, how many choruses did they take? Who played a solo? How, what, how did they change the melody the second time? Like really analyze what's happening rather than just, oh, that was fun. You know, that was, that sounded good to me. And there's a very big difference in that, you know? Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. I, I love all this, but I would love to also hear about your, um, your albums and your studio experience. Um, you've released two albums, right? I have. In 2009 and 2016. I know. I can't believe my first album is already 10 years old, so... <laughs> yeah. So what, um, between recording your first album and your second album, what changed, um, about your approach and, you know, the actual st studio experience? I know Sean arranged the tunes for your second album, or I think he did, right? Yeah. He actually arranged for both. Okay. Albums he arranged for. Do you think that the second album was a, a large improvement over the first? I don't, I don't think I'd say it's an improvement. It's just different. With the first album, we took, um, well, it was funny. The first album, I really wrestled with even doing it. I think I was, yeah, I was like 34 at the time. And I just thought, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Like we all kind of feel like it's, we're just never ready for it. Right. And it was actually my teacher, Lisanne, who would, as I'm going round and round about doing this said, you know, it's a snapshot in time. It's a snapshot in where you are right now. And when we think about our favorite players, too, I love listening to my singer's voices age and the different process throughout the decades. I love that so much. So I don't know why I thought mine needed to be perfect, you know, out the gate. But the first album um, was primarily standards, all standards, but pretty popular standards. Um, I had quite a few Harold Arlen songs on that CD because for my master's, um, my thesis was on Harold Arlen, so that was kind of who I was studying. So um, it was sort of started out as some Harold Arlen songs, and then it morphed into an album. Sean did all the arrangements, um, and it was wonderful. It was a really great experience, and I felt I felt really good about it. Uh, of course, there were issues. There's always issues in recording, um, and you know this is that when we record, everything is live. So the whole group gets in there and they all play. Um, sometimes I sing with them during the time. In fact, the majority of the time I sing with the band um, and then I will just go back and punch certain things. Um, I don't let them play and then go in and sing over top of it because there's a certain energy that happens and it's amazing. You can hear it from track to track, how the energy changes a little bit. And, and it's because we're all kind of feeding off of each other musically. So. I want to be a part of that. Um, the one thing I also found too um, is that basically after the third take, you're done. It's not going to get any better after the third take, at least for me, for my experiences, because by that time I'm overthinking it too much. You know, it's it's not quite as organic as the first couple times because everyone's just kind of diving in. You know, honestly, the majority of takes that we've done, it's usually the first or the second. Many times it's the first one that, because people are just kind of diving into it. You know, we haven't had a, a rehearsal usually for the first album. 
I don't remember us having a rehearsal, but Sean would send the arrangements to people and said, this is kind of the vibe that we're going for here. So a lot of times in the studio, it's the first time that we're hearing it, you know? So there's that energy that's so incredible that you don't really want to not be a part of. The second album was we picked more obscure tunes and I kind of had a little bit of a theme with the second album of not really moon and sun and stars, but it was the second album's entitled Where the Blue Begins, which is actually a lyric from the song um, Stairway to the Stars. And so all the, the songs on it do have that kind of element, destination moon, no moon at all, stairway to the stars, darn that dream. So the tune, I didn't really want to have a cheesy, every single tune has a moon in it, you know, but I wanted an underlying thread kind of going through everything. With the second CD, the arrangements were much more involved. Sean really, uh, <laughs> he arranged a lot for the second CD, which I loved. We were checking out some of my favorite albums. Um, some of my favorite CDs right now is a vocalist named Denise Donatelli. She's out on the West Coast. And um, Jeffrey Keezer is her arranger. And he just wrote some really incredible um, pieces for her, arrangements for her. And so Sean was kind of, emulating a little bit of that for me too. I wanted to sing solis more. I wanted to um, really be challenged and kind of stretch myself on the CD. So he did that. And we love it. It's a wonderful CD. The one thing with this CD that we've realized after the fact is it's very hard to play on gigs with people without a rehearsal. It's very hard because the arrangements are so challenging that we really need, um, we really need time to at least kind of work on them. Um, or to have the other players if we don't know the players in another town work on them. So we've already discussed for the next CD, um, having a little bit of both, putting that a little bit of both, because what I'm finding is that I can still sing a lot of the songs for the first CD, but the second CD, unless it's the conditions are right, I can't perform as many of them as I would like to. Mm. So that's, that's kind of it. But, you know, this, these are all part of the process, which I love, the recording process. Well, I love it and I hate it. I love it because the excitement and then learning new repertoire and just kind of getting that going is, is great. The part that I don't like is that, boy, it is really hard to listen to yourself. You know, it's one of these things where I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I do that so many times on that song? And I don't want to go back and fix it because then the energy is different. You know, even the timbre for a vocalist, if I go back and punch one line, it's going to sound different than the rest of the track. And I just don't want to lose that organic naturalness. And plus, I like mistakes. I don't like things to be 100% perfect because, number one, we're not, you know. Number two, that just means, says to me, you fixed it. And I don't think we should be fixing as much as we do these days, you know. Fixing a little bit is okay. We all do it, myself included. But if you don't have to do it, I don't think it should be done. Oh, come on. You want auto-tune and jazz? <laughs> don't even get me started on that <laughs> you know when we were living in nashville that was one of the first times too that we had ever heard of live autotune mm. you know we were getting to know these people that were like yeah oh yeah we've got live autotune on so-and-so's mic and line i'm like what I'm like, i don't i just that's not that's just not my thing but it's fine for other people <laughs> yeah Wow. I, I really, really enjoyed when you had some um, vocal lines that Sean played guitar, like they were synchronized jazz. They were, they were really well done. Oh, thank you. Well, and that's what he did a lot on this album. And I loved it because that is so challenging for me to learn these intricate lines because what he sometimes forgets as a guitar player is that he doesn't have to worry about breathing. Yeah. So he will like just write these, you know, 16th note lines that after a while I'm like, I have to take the breath. <laughs> I have to, you know, or my, my tongue does not move that fast. Like I have to put syllables to it and I have to kind of figure it out. But the cool thing about it is that um, I do this every single time with him. He writes me something amazing. I don't like it. Uh, I don't like this. I'm not, I don't like it. <laughs> and then I get into it and I start working more and more and it gets easier and it gets better. And then I realize oh, I love it. I just needed to, I needed to do it, you know? Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes he will write things that it's like, this is, this is too many notes. I physically can't do this. So we need to adjust it a little bit, but 
for the most part, I'm usually always able to, yeah, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. It's nice when your repertoire pushes you to grow. Um, I'm, I love like trying to write something that's going to be more difficult for you to play and you actually have to like build up to it. Yeah. And rather than practicing technical exercises, you just through a song you you practiced and got better. Right. Well, there's such a big difference too between singing and obviously playing guitar. I know that sounds like such a dumb statement, but when you're trying to sing a guitar line, that's very challenging just because number one, orally, it's just different from a lot of melodies, you know, like a lot of melodies now, even jazz melodies, you kind of know where they're going to go sort of. And if you don't, that makes it really interesting. But with instrumental lines, that's just a totally different ball game. So it's, it's such a great challenge. I love it. And another challenge too, is that, so for the album, I had to come up with all the scat syllables to make sure, and that's a work in progress. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes with his album that's just coming out, there were a couple lines I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't sang a da there, I wish I'd sang a this there, you know, because it fit or not. And then you're trying to match the timbre of the instrument, which is what I love as well too, is instead of sounding like you as a singer singing a lyric, now you're trying to blend with a guitar and a tenor saxophone and fit within that and become a texture that, um, complements it and makes it better rather than having it stick out and i i love that i almost love that more than singing lyrics sometimes because it's just it's a total different use of your brain that's very cool i, I feel like in your um your jazz ensemble you do you try to do that with all the backing vocalists create yeah. sections Yes. Yeah, I definitely do. And yeah. And in fact, I've tried to incorporate, yeah, the ensemble for sure definitely has that where they're, they are a lot of times singing horn parts. They are kind of horn lines or singing horn lines or singing more background lines and how, you know, they approach it. That's always an interesting of how, how do you approach singing a main melody versus a background dua or something? It's very, very different. And it's just the timbre's got to change. The volume's got to change, so then the control changes. Um, so there's that, and then I've also tried to work with the solo singers in the studio as well too, as learning instrumental solos and putting their own scat syllables over those solos as well too. And that's we're going to be getting uh, doing a lot of that this year because <laughs> that's going to challenge them orally to number one learn the solo and now number two you've got to come up with what's comfortable syllable wise in your mouth for you to do the solo and by the way you have to try to work it at every single tempo slow tempo and then faster tempos too just to make sure that do i really have this the muscle memory in my mouth and that brings us to the end of part one with Darden Purcell. Join us next Thursday as we get into part two. And Darden shares with us some techniques and some tips for our vocals. Be sure to check out Darden's album, Where the Blue Begins. As well, Darden's husband, Sean Purcell, just released an album called Symmetricity. Be sure to check out both of those albums. They're really, really good. I uh, can't recommend them highly enough. As always, take five seconds. If you like the show, pop on over to iTunes and give us a review. And lastly, I definitely want to thank you for listening. Our numbers have increased. That all is attributed to you guys. Um, thank you for sharing. Thank you for getting the word out about Fret Buzz the podcast. We have some pretty amazing guests on the way, to say the least. Um, and yeah, I just want to thank you personally. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be able to bring all this great information to you. And I'm glad that you are enjoying. So yeah, keep on sharing. Keep on letting everybody know. And... Uh, yeah, if you like, send me an email, Aaron at fretbuzzthepodcast.com. Okay, everybody. Um, I hope you have a good day. Keep playing, keep rocking, and we'll see you next Thursday for part two with Darden Purcell on Fret Buzz, the podcast. Mm -hmm.